Hello, and welcome to Harry Potter and the Methods of Rationality, the podcast. Written by Eliezer Yudkowsky, read by Eniash Brodsky, based on the works of J.K. Rowling. Chapter 122, Something to Protect, Hermione Granger. It was evening, and it was morning, the last day, June 15th, 1992. The beginning light of morning, the pre-dawn before sunrise, was barely brightening the sky. To the east of Hogwarts, where the sun would rise, that faintest tinge of gray made barely visible the hilly horizon beyond the Quidditch stands. The stone terrace platform where Harry now sat would be high enough to see the dawn beyond the hills below. He'd asked for that when he was describing his new office. Harry was currently sitting cross-legged on a cushion, chilly pre-morning breezes stirring over his exposed hands and face. He'd ordered the house elves to bring up the hand-glittered throne from his previous office as general chaos, and then he'd told the elves to put it back, once it had occurred to Harry to start worrying about where his taste in decorations had come from, and whether Voldemort had once possessed a similar throne. Which, itself, wasn't a knockdown argument. It wasn't like sitting on a glittery throne to survey the lands below Hogwarts was unethical in any way Harry's moral philosophy could make out. But Harry had decided that he needed to take time and think it through. Meanwhile, simple cushions would do well enough. In the room below, connected to the rooftop by a simple wooden ladder, was Harry's new office inside Hogwarts. A wide room, surrounded by full wall windows on four sides for sunlight, currently bare of furnishings but for four chairs and a desk. Harry had told Headmistress McGonagall what he was looking for, and Headmistress McGonagall had put on the sorting hat and then told Harry the series of twists and turns that would take him where he wanted to be, high enough in Hogwarts that the castle shouldn't have been that tall high enough in Hogwarts that nobody looking from the outside would see a piece of castle corresponding to where Harry now sat. It seemed like an elementary precaution against snipers that there was no reason not to take. Though, on the flip side, Harry had no idea where he currently was in any real sense. If his office couldn't be seen from the lands below, then how was Harry seeing the lands? How were photons making it from the landscape to him? On the western side of the horizon, stars still glittered, clear in the pre-dawn air. Were those photons the actual photons that had been emitted by huge plasma furnaces in the unimaginable distance? Or did Harry now sit within some dreaming vision of the Hogwarts castle? Or was it all, without any further explanation, just magic? He needed to get electricity to work better around magic so he could experiment with shining lasers downward and upward. And yes, Harry had his own office in Hogwarts now. He didn't have any official title yet, but the boy who lived was now a true fixture of the Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry, the soon-to-be home of the Philosopher's Stone and the world's only wizarding institution of genuinely higher education. It wasn't fully secured, but Professor Vector had put up some preliminary charms and runes to screen the office and its rooftop against eavesdropping. 
Harry sat on his cushion near the edge of his office's roof and gazed down upon trees and lakes and flowering grass. Far below, carriages sat motionless, not yet harnessed to skeletal horses. Small boats littered the shore, prepared to ferry younger students across the lake when the time came. The Hogwarts Express had arrived overnight, and now the train cars and the huge old-fashioned engine awaited on the other side of the southern lake. All was ready to take the students home after the leave-taking feast in the morning. Harry stared across the lake at the great old-fashioned locomotive he wouldn't be riding home this time. Again. There was a strange sadness and worry to that thought, like Harry was already starting to miss out on the bonding experiences with the other students his age, if you could say that at all, when a significant part of Harry had been born in 1926. It had felt to Harry, last night in the Ravenclaw common room, like the gap between him and the other students had, yes, widened even further. Though that might only have been from the questions Padma Patil and Anthony Goldstein had excitedly asked each other about the girl who revived, the rapid-fire speculations shooting through the air from Ravenclaw to Ravenclaw. Harry had known the answers, he'd known all the answers, and he hadn't been able to say them. There was a part of Harry that was tempted to go on the Hogwarts Express and then come back to Hogwarts by flu. But when Harry imagined finding five other students in his compartment and then spending the next eight hours keeping secrets from Neville or Padma or Dean or Tracy or Lavender, it didn't seem like an attractive prospect. Harry felt like he ought to do it for reasons of socializing with the other children, but he did not want to do it. He could meet with everyone again at the start of the next school year, when there would be other topics of which he could speak more freely. Harry stared south across the lake at the huge old locomotive and thought about the rest of his life. About the future. The prophecy Dumbledore's letter had mentioned about him tearing apart the stars in heaven, well, that sounded optimistic. That part had an obvious interpretation to anyone who'd grown up with the right sort of upbringing. It described a future where humanity had won, more or less. It wasn't what Harry usually thought about when he gazed at the stars, but from a truly adult perspective, the stars were enormous heaps of valuable raw materials that had unfortunately caught fire and needed to be scattered and put out. If you were tapping the huge hydrogen-helium reservoirs for raw materials, that meant your species had successfully grown up. Unless the prophecy had been referring to something else entirely, Dumbledore might have been misinterpreting some seer's words. But his message to Harry had been phrased as if there'd been a prophecy about Harry personally tearing apart stars in the foreseeable future which seemed potentially more worrisome, though by no means certain to be true, or a bad thing if it was true. Harry vented a sigh. He'd begun to understand, in the long hours before sleep had taken him last night, just what Dumbledore's last message implied. 
looking back on the events of the 1991-1992 to Hogwarts school year was nothing short of bone-freezingly terrifying now that Harry understood what he was seeing. It wasn't just that Harry had kept the frequent company of his good friend Lord Voldemort. It wasn't even mostly that. It was the vision of a narrow line of time that Albus Dumbledore had steered through fate's narrow keyhole. A hair-thin strand of possibility threaded through a needle's eye. The prophecies had instructed Dumbledore to have Tom Riddle's intelligence copied onto the brain of a wizarding infant who would then grow up learning muggle science. What did it say about the likely shape of the future if that was the first or best strategy the seers could find that didn't lead to catastrophe? Harry could now look back on the unbreakable vow that he'd made and guess that if not for that vow, disaster might have already been set in motion yesterday when Harry had wanted to tear down the International Statute of Secrecy, which in turn strongly suggested that the many prophecies Dumbledore had read and whose instructions he'd followed had somehow ensured that Harry and Voldemort would collide in exactly the right way to cause Voldemort to force Harry to make that unbreakable vow. That the unbreakable vow had been part of time's narrow keyhole, one of the improbable preconditions for allowing the Earth's people to survive. A vow whose sole current purpose was to protect everyone from Harry's current stupidity. It was like watching a videotape of an almost traffic accident that had happened to you, where you remembered another car missing you by centimeters, and the video showing that someone had also thrown a pebble in exactly the right way to cause an enormous lorry to miss that near collision. And if they hadn't thrown that pebble, then you and all your family in the automobile and your entire planet would have been hit by the lorry which, in the metaphor, represented your own sheer obliviousness. Harry had been warned. He'd known on some level, or the vow wouldn't have stopped him. And yet, he'd still almost made the wrong choice and destroyed the world. Harry could look back now and see that, yes, the alternate Harry with no vow would have had trouble accepting the reasoning that said you couldn't get magical healing to the muggles as fast as possible. If the alternate Harry had acknowledged the danger at all, he would have rationalized it, tried to figure out some clever way around the problem, and refused to accept taking a few years longer to do it. And so the world would have ended. Even after all the warnings Harry had received, it still wouldn't have worked without the unbreakable vow. One tiny strand of time being threaded through a needle's eye. Harry didn't know how to handle this revelation. It wasn't a sort of situation that human beings had evolved emotions to handle. All Harry could do was stare at how close he had come to disaster, might come again to disaster if that vow was fated to trigger more than once, and think, think, I don't want that to happen again, didn't seem like the right thought. He'd never wanted to destroy the world in the first place. Harry hadn't lacked for protective feelings about Earth's sapient population. 
Those protective feelings had been the problem, in a way. What Harry had lacked was some element of clear vision, of being willing to consciously acknowledge what he'd already known deep down. And the whole thing with Harry having spent the last year cozying up to the defense professor didn't speak highly of his intellect either. It seemed to point to the same problem, even. There were things Harry had known or strongly suspected on some level, but never promoted to conscious attention. And so he had failed and nearly died. I need to raise the level of my game. That was the thought Harry was looking for. He had to do better than this, become a less stupid person than this. I need to raise the level of my game, or fail. Dumbledore had destroyed the recordings in the Hall of Prophecy and arranged for no further recordings to be made. There'd apparently been a prophecy that said Harry mustn't look upon those prophecies. And the obvious next thought, which might or might not be true, was that saving the world was beyond the reach of prophetic instruction. That winning would take plans that were too complex for Seer's messages, or that divination couldn't see somehow. If there'd been some way for Dumbledore to save the world himself, then prophecy would probably have told Dumbledore how to do that. Instead, the prophecies had told Dumbledore how to create the preconditions for a particular sort of person existing. A person, maybe, who could unravel a challenge more difficult than prophecy could solve directly. That was why Harry had been placed on his own, to think without prophetic guidance. If all Harry did was follow mysterious orders from prophecies, then he wouldn't mature into a person who could perform that unknown task. And right now, Harry James Potter Evans Varus was still a walking catastrophe who'd needed to be constrained by an unbreakable vow to prevent him from immediately setting the earth on an inevitable course toward destruction when he'd already been warned against it. That had happened literally yesterday, just one day after he'd helped Voldemort almost take over the planet. A certain line from Tolkien kept running through Harry's mind, the part where Frodo, upon Mount Doom, had put on the ring, and Sauron suddenly realized what a complete idiot he'd been. And the magnitude of his own folly was at last laid bare, or however that had gone. There was a huge gap between who Harry needed to become and who he was right now. And Harry didn't think that time, life experience, and puberty would take care of that automatically, though they might help. Though if Harry could grow into an adult that was to this self what a normal adult was to a normal 11-year-old, maybe that would be enough to steer through time's narrow keyhole. He had to grow up, somehow and there was no traditional path laid out before him for accomplishing that. The thought came then to Harry of another work of fiction, more obscure than Tolkien. You can only arrive at mastery by practicing the techniques you have learned, facing challenges and apprehending them, 
using to the fullest the tools you have been taught, until they shatter in your hands and you are left in the midst of wreckage absolute. I cannot create masters. I have never known how to create masters. Go, then, and fail. You have been shaped into something that may emerge from the wreckage, determined to remake your art. I cannot create masters, but if you had not been taught, your chances would be less. The higher road begins after the art seems to fail you, though the reality will be that it was you who failed your art. It wasn't that Harry had gone down the wrong path. It wasn't that the road to sanity lay somewhere outside of science. But reading science papers hadn't been enough. All the cognitive psychology papers about known bugs in the human brain and so on had helped, but they hadn't been sufficient. He'd failed to reach what Harry was starting to realize was a shockingly high standard of being so incredibly, unbelievably rational that you actually started to get things right as opposed to having a handy language in which to describe afterward everything you'd just done wrong. Harry could look back now and apply ideas like motivated cognition to see where he'd gone astray over the last year. That counted for something when it came to being saner in the future. That was better than having no idea what he'd done wrong. But that wasn't yet being the person who could pass through time's narrow keyhole, the adult form whose possibility Dumbledore had been instructed by Sears to create. I need to think faster, grow up faster. How alone am I? How alone will I be? Am I making the same mistake I made during Professor Quirrell's first battle? when I didn't realize Hermione had captains. The mistake I made when I didn't tell Dumbledore about the sense of doom, once I realized Dumbledore probably wasn't mad or evil. It would help if muggles had classes for this sort of thing, but they didn't. Maybe Harry could recruit Daniel Kahneman, fake his death, rejuvenate him with the stone, and put him in charge of inventing better training methods. Harry took the Elder Wand out of his robes, gazed again at the dark gray wood that Dumbledore had passed down to him. Harry had tried to think faster this time, had tried to complete the pattern implied by the Cloak of Invisibility and the Resurrection Stone. The Cloak of Invisibility had possessed the legendary power of hiding the wearer, and the hidden power of allowing the wearer to hide from death itself in the form of Dementors. The Resurrection Stone had the legendary power of summoning an image of the dead, and when Voldemort had incorporated it into his Horcrux system to allow his spirit to move freely. The second Deathly Hallow was a potential component of a system of true immortality that Cadmus Peveril had never completed, maybe due to his having ethics. And then there was the third Deathly Hallow, the Elder Wand of Antioch Peveril, that legend said passed from wizard to stronger wizard and made its holder invincible against ordinary attacks. That was the known and overt characteristic. 
the elder wand that had belonged to Dumbledore, who'd been trying to prevent the death of the world itself. The purpose of the Elder Wand always going to the victor might be to find the strongest living wizard and empower them still further, in case there was any threat to their entire species. It could secretly be a tool to defeat death in its form as the destroyer of worlds. But if there was some higher power locked within the Elder Wand, it had not presented itself to Harry based on that guess. Harry had raised up the Elder Wand and spoken to it, named himself a descendant of Peveril who accepted his family's quest. He'd promised the Elder Wand that he would do his best to save the world from death and take up Dumbledore's duty. And the Elder Wand had answered no more strongly to his hand than before, refusing his attempt to jump ahead in the story. Maybe Harry needed to strike his first true blow against the death of worlds before the Elder Wand would acknowledge him, as the heir of Ignatus Peveril had already defeated Death's shadow, and the heir of Cadmus Peveril had already survived the death of his body when their respective Deathly Hallows had revealed their secrets. At least Harry had managed to guess that, contrary to legend, the Elder Wand didn't contain a core of Thestral hair. Harry had seen Thestrals, and they were skeletal horses with smooth skin and no visible mane on their skull-like heads, nor tufts on their bony tails. But what core was truly inside the Elder Wand, Harry hadn't yet felt himself knowing. Nor had he been able to find, anywhere on the Elder Wand, the circle-triangle line of the Deathly Hallows that should have been present. I don't suppose... Harry murmured to the Elder Wand, You could just tell me. There came back no answer from the globe-knobbed wand, only a sense of glory and contained power, watching him skeptically. Harry sighed and put the most powerful wand in the world back into his school robes. He'd get it eventually, and hopefully in time. Maybe faster if there was someone to help him do the research. Harry was aware on some level, no, he needed to stop being aware of things on some level and start just being aware of them. Harry was explicitly and consciously aware that he was ruminating about the future mostly to distract himself from the imminent arrival of Hermione Granger who would receive a clear bill of health from St. Mungo's when she woke up very early this morning, and who would then flew with Professor Flitwick back to Hogwarts, whereupon she'd tell Professor Flitwick that she needed to speak with Harry Potter immediately. There'd been a note from Harry to himself about that when Harry had woken up later this morning with the sun already risen in the Ravenclaw dorm. He'd read the note, and then time turned back to before the dawn hour when Hermione Granger would arrive. She won't actually be angry with me. Doubting internal silence. Seriously, Hermione isn't that kind of person. Maybe she was at the start of the year, but she's too self-aware to fall for that one now. Doubting internal silence. What do you mean, doubting internal silence? If you have something to say, inner voice, just say it. We're trying to be more aware of our own thought processes, remember? 
End first part of chapter 122. This chapter's original text, production notes, and attribution links, along with archives and much more, can be found at hpmorpodcast.com. If you would like to learn more about the art of rationality, please visit lesswrong.com, an online community of aspiring rationalists founded by Eliezer Yudkowsky. Today's music is Morning Sunlight by Chrono Symphonic. Come back in two weeks for the continuation of Chapter 122, Something to Protect, Hermione Granger.